Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, we're discussing plans to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This is in advance of a webinar being hosted on this subject by the Foundation on the 21st of March. With me to discuss net zero is Lord Adair Turner, Chair of the Energy Transitions Commission, who is also a speaker at that event. Lord Turner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we all know that getting to net zero is a massively complex challenge with lots of different interconnected pieces. And I wanted to pull out and look at some of those pieces with you. Um, obviously, one of the most important one is energy generation. Uh, and how is the world in general, and I guess the UK eventually, doing on uh, uses of renewable energy in terms of scale and speed and cost of deployment and so on? Well, you're absolutely right that the single most important thing to get us to net zero carbon emissions and methane emissions, at least in the energy building industry and transport sector, is to decarbonize the electricity system and build a much, much bigger electricity system to serve a much wider set of needs, electrifying as much of the economy as possible and using hydrogen made from electricity as a way to decarbonize other sectors. At the Energy Transition Commission, we put a lot of effort into how to decarbonize heavy industrial sectors like steel and chemicals, uh, cement, uh, aviation shipping. But when you've worked that out, you often come back to realizing you need even more electricity. So order of magnitude, we think that across the world, we will need to take global electricity use from 27,000 terawatt hours today to something like 100,000 uh, used either directly or used to make hydrogen by 2050. And what's going on there is that even rich developed societies like the UK will have much bigger electricity systems, taking our electricity systems from say 300 terawatt hours to 700 terawatt hours maybe, while places like India will multiply electricity six times and places like Africa 15 or 20 times. And all of that has to be decarbonized. And that means that there has to be a huge build of renewables, there may be nuclear and a hydro in some places as well, but the absolute core of it will be uh, wind uh, and solar. And to give you an idea of that, a solar may have to end up with as much as 25,000 or uh, 30,000 gigawatts of capacity. Now, how are we doing? Well, last year, we probably went over the 1,000 gigawatt solar capacity across the world level. And we're building at about 250 gigawatts a year. But we got to step up that rate of build to about uh, 1,000 gigawatts, one terawatt a year. And we got to maintain that for 25 years. So the answer is, we are accelerating globally fast. We are accelerating because the costs of solar and also wind have come down. But we've got to accelerate still further. Now, in the UK, the core will not be solar. Uh, there are many countries I've been to recently, Indonesia, uh, India, Australia, where the core of the system will be solar. In the UK, the absolute core of the system uh, will be offshore wind. 
We are now committed to having about 50 gigawatts of offshore wind in place by 2030, uh, indicative target of maybe 100 uh, by 2050. We are just about, just about still with the possibility of getting to that 50 gigawatts, but we will have to accelerate the pace not only of the auctions for that 50 gigawatt of capacity, how many auctions we do each year that people commit uh, to delivering uh, those projects, but we will also have to speed up the pace at which those can go through planning and permitting systems. So the bottom line is there really is nothing more important here than building a much bigger and entirely zero carbon electricity system. The costs are much more favorable than we, they were before. We are accelerating, but we've got to accelerate still further. Well, I want to talk to you about cost and the, and the financial challenge, not just of the electricity system, but getting to net zero in total. Uh, and I know that there's a new report coming out from the Energy Transitions Commission this week. What are the main conclusions from that in terms of how we finance that this big global transition? Well, if you were to step back, as our report does, and say, how much finance will we need from now to uh, 2050, let's say around mid-century, uh, on average, to build the zero carbon economy the world needs, it'll be in terms of uh, investment in the new system, somewhere in the 3.5 to 4 trillion per annum range versus about a trillion being invested in that category of uh, investments today. Some of that will be offset by the fact that we'll probably spend a 0.5 trillion less per year, 500 billion less per year on average in the fossil fuel system. And some of that 3.5, 4 trillion is not really additional because it's in countries that have to build energy systems in any case. So, you know, the fact that Africa will spend a huge amount building a clean electricity system, it's going to have to build one or other electricity system. So the total truly incremental figures is a fraction of that. But suppose it's half, suppose it's two trillion a year. That is still doable in global macroeconomic terms. It's affordable in terms of the size of future GDP, future uh, global savings and investments. But it's still a massive reallocation of, of capital. We've got to invest capital in new things, and it is big capital in total. Now, in terms of where the key amounts of money are, um, it's crucial to realize that the single most important element is the electricity system. Indeed, we, uh, when we run the figures, we think that maybe 70% of all the investment that is needed is in building this green electricity system, both the generation, but also of that 70%, getting on for a half is transmission and distribution. And we sometimes lose sight of how important the wires are, uh, as well as the generating mechanism. Now, outside that 70%, yes, of course, there are big figures for new uh, iron and steel making plants, uh, changed cement plants, new ships that can burn ammonia or, or methanol. Though it's interesting that every time we run the figures, for, uh, let's say, a sector like iron and steel or some other industrial sector, let's take iron and steel and say, okay, how much investment is required to get that to net zero? When we work out how much is required in the iron and steel mills themselves, we always find that that is a fraction 
of what is required in, for instance, the renewable energy to create the green hydrogen that they will use. So that upstream element, as we call it, of the, uh, the electricity system is all vital. But seen within the context of the industries themselves, the investments in the new ships, the new cement kilns, the new steel plants, those are big as well. And if that's what's needed, how do you see where we are now in terms of the, the capital that's flowing and also the decision making that's needed to generate the kind of sums that you've talked about? Well, we're very confident that those sums are available and that they can occur, but we need strong supporting policies to make sure that they occur. And those supporting policies, there's a different balance between the rich developed countries and the developing. In the rich developed countries, the crucial thing is to get right what we call the real economy policy levers. I, not necessarily policy levers deliberately focused on the financial sector itself, but general policy levers like bans on future sales of internal combustion engines, support for renewable uh, electricity development through contracts for differences that create a, a fixed price possibility, carbon prices that mean that people have got to uh, decarbonize their industrial processes. In the rich developed world, if you get that policy mix right, most of the finance flow will occur because private finance does it. Private asset managers, private asset owners, private financial institutions, uh, banks. Even in the rich developed countries, there is still a role for public finance institutions like infrastructure banks. I think they have a particular role in financing first-of-a-kind industrial plants, which are, are new. Uh, they also have a crucial role where there is shared infrastructure requirement, for instance, where you've got to put together maybe a, a CO2 piping uh, network to serve many different potential customers or hydrogen pipes, that sort of shared infrastructure. Often there are a role for infrastructure banks. But on the whole, in the rich developed world, think about it being, you know, the vast majority is the private sector financial institutions that do it. There's then a range of countries from the developed world through the upper middle, through the middle, middle, lower income. When you go to the other extreme, uh, lower income developing countries take sub-Saharan Africa. You know, frankly, very few major global asset managers pay attention to it. Very few banks are investing in it. The perceptions of risk are very high and the cost of capital is high uh, and that is an impediment to development so when you're at that end of the spectrum there has to be a major role for the multilateral development banks and the official financial institutions to create the conditions to provide the guarantees to take the tiers of the higher risk within uh, project structures hopefully then leverage in a private finance as well. But there it has to be led somewhat by public financial institutions. And there is this spectrum from rich to poor countries uh, along that. Final thing to say, the role of asset owners and banks, private banks, private asset owners, in committing to be net zero, to saying we are going to have a strategy which is compatible with net zero, and then working out what that means for what they should do and what they shouldn't do, that is also 
an important, powerful lever. It can only ever be an ancillary lever. You know, that won't be sufficient if we don't have really powerful national economic policies like carbon pricing and regulation. But it is a very important uh, supplementary lever and one we're getting as many as possible uh, financial institutions across the world. And we saw this through what's called the GFANS initiative uh, launched at COP26. That is very important, but very important also that having made those commitments to net zero, they actually work out what that means in terms of the rules that they apply and the reallocation of capital that they have to drive within their internal processes and within the measures that they measure and then they disclose. So everything you've talked about so far has been at the scale of international organizations, national governments, large financial institutions, and so on. I want to take you to the other end and, and think about individuals. And certainly in the rich developed world where you have a, a large amount of housing stock that is still going to be around in 2050, where you have individuals who are wondering whether their lifestyles are going to need to change in order to get to the kind of net zero that we need. What's needed in terms of finance? What's needed in terms of policy to create the changes that we need in housing, in behaviour and, and so on? Well, I think you've rightly focused by referring to housing on one of the most difficult issues. Let's be clear, there are some sectors of the economy where what has to happen is fundamentally driven by you know, business leadership and public policy. And the individual, they should support it, they should uh, vote for the parties that support it, but they will not have to do much. Let's take global shipping, right? We know how to get global shipping to be net zero. Uh, it fundamentally means it'll have a role for uh, electricity and hydrogen at the short distance. For the long distance, the bulk carriers, the tankers which currently move LNG around the world and might in future move uh, ammonia and hydrogen or for the container ships, we will switch from powering those with heavy fuel oil to powering them with either methanol and um, or ammonia. Um, and, you know, shipping companies, relatively concentrated set of group across the world, have got to make that decision. They've got to place the orders for the ships. And at the end of the day, it will be an achieved and frankly, the ordinary consumer won't work notice much because although using the other these other fuels will increase the cost of shipping, the impact of that on a pair of jeans which is made in Bangladesh and bought in London will be so trivial you won't notice it. So there are some bits of this transition do occur at that sort of managerial public policy business level. You have correctly highlighted one where progress requires the engagement of individuals. When you get to residential heat, and by the way, this is primarily a problem for the high latitude and on the whole, the rich developed countries. When you go to uh, low latitude and lower income countries, the fundamental problem is cooling, uh, not heating. But And it's, it's fundamentally about new cities being built, not old. But here in uh, uh, UK, in some of Northwest Europe, in U US, Northern China, we have an existing housing stock. It has uh, fossil fuel-based heating in it, in the UK's case, uh, gas boilers. And we've got to get some transition to a different system. And that means that in 25 million households, somebody's got to make a decision 
Somebody's got to turn up with some builders, some plumbers, some electricians, uh, some insulators, and they've got to do something. And that, in a sense, is a, a much bigger implementation challenge than those where, you know, it, with the global steel industry or the global cement industry, the global shipping industry, there's 100 people across the world. If you got them into a room and they agreed they're going to do it, it will sort of happen and getting it where it requires 25 million households is more is more tricky now there are a variety of technological solutions my own gut feel is they will primarily be electric it's still debated as to whether there's a role for hydrogen primarily electric but we will require a very forceful set of policies to think through how fast that transition go but also to provide easy finance for people to pay for that particularly at low incomes. And in some cases, that will have to be grants, not loans. But also, crucially, we will have to develop supply chains. I mean, the UK Climate Change Committee, in its report, suggested that we will need about 200,000 more plumbers, electricians, building insulator, craftspeople to drive this change required in the residential housing stock. Now, just to end up, though, with your point about changes in consumer behavior, because although that requires people to make a decision, people to know where they can go to, to ring somebody up and say, you know, give me a quote to do it, it doesn't necessarily change, you know, lifestyle at the end. It doesn't necessarily change how warm their house is. So the question is, are there other areas where we do need a change in behaviour, i.e. people flying less or driving cars less, etc.? I think on the whole, the answer is we don't absolutely need that, but it will make it far easier to achieve. Across most sectors of the economy, I can define the technologies that would allow people to have somewhat unchanged lifestyles. I think there are some areas where we are seeing significant lifestyle changes simply because people are choosing them and it's more attractive in any case. I mean, we are seeing in the major concentrated cities of Europe, London in particular, very significant declines among young people in car ownership. They just don't see why they have to own a car uh, in future. Um, big shifts to bicycles, electric bikes, electric scooters, this whole uh, two-wheeler revolution. That is a change in lifestyle, but I think it's one which many people will welcome for other reasons apart from climate change. I would say the biggest open issue on lifestyle relates to food, land use and diet. So do I think we can ship a pair of jeans from Bangladesh to London in a zero carbon fashion and therefore not change how many jeans you buy each year because you hardly change the price? Yes, I think that's technologically solvable. I don't know how at the moment to put a stop to the destruction of the tropical rainforests without a radical reduction in the demand for animal red meat. Now, that could come either from new technologies like you know, synthetic meat, or it could come from a change in diet choices of shifting to plant-based alternatives. But right at the moment, I don't know how the world is going to put a stop to deforestation, 80% of which is driven either directly by cattle pasture or by soya production to feed to cattle. And that is why I would say the biggest thing that somebody can do right today in their personal behavior to cut their carbon footprint is usually 
not to eliminate entirely, but to significantly to reduce red meat consumption. That's really interesting. And certainly in, in my own family, I can see that that's something driven by my own teenage children. So, yeah, that's really helpful. And I think you'll find in 10 years time, they're not buying a car either. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. I can, I can, I can tell can... you, my daughters are early 30s. They don't own cars. I don't think any of their friends own cars. I think this is a, a major shift occurring. Of course, it's occurring in particular geographies. Big difference between uh, yeah. the city centre, you know, Paris and outside. And we need to be very aware of that. You know, why did the Gilets Jaunes protest occur in France? I think it's partly because a Parisian-dominated government failed to realise that increases in uh, diesel price were pretty unimportant to people who lived in Paris, but pretty important to people who lived in uh, small towns in the middle of France. So we need to be very aware of different locations, different regions in our countries. But certainly, I think in the major cities of the world, I think we will probably see quite a big shift away from the car. And that will make much more attractive places to live in, as well as contributing to the fight against climate change. So we're nearly coming to the end, but I wanted to ask you one more question. We've been talking globally for almost the whole of this discussion, but I just want to focus a little bit on the UK. Given all the things that you've been talking about, what do you think are the big decisions that the UK government's going to need to take in the next sort of four or five years in order to keep us on track for our contribution to the, the global situation? Well, the UK has this very clear framework of legal commitment to zero carbon by 2050 and these legally legislated budgets, which are advised by uh, the Climate Change Committee, of which I was the first chair, and they set out the path through to 2030, through to 2035, 2040. If I was to think about which bits of that path am I confident will be achieved and where I think there's more work to do, I would say that the decarbonization of the electricity system is highly likely to occur, that we need a bit more work to work out exactly how we get to the target of a zero carbon electricity system by 2035. The CCC has put out a report today. What that is going to illustrate is that we've got to keep up the pressure on offshore wind. It's going to highlight some things like how do you balance that last 10% of the system? Is it gas turbines still burning gas, but with carbon capture and storage? Or is it a large hydrogen storage capability, which then gets burnt in that those gas turbines? We've got, really got to focus on those last 10 to last 15% challenges. But broadly speaking, I think electricity is heading in the right direction. We need to keep up the pace and deal with the final remaining elements. In electricity, though, I would also highlight, let's really pivot and make sure we're investing enough in the wires, the transmission and distribution wires, the generation heading in the right direction. I think road transport heading in the right direction with our ban on internal combustion engine sales from 2030, hybrids are allowed out to 2035, we will inevitably drive a shift to EVs. We will need in the 2040s to have a way of getting the existing stock of internal combustion engines out of the system to get to net zero. But again, I think we're sort of on an unstoppable path there. So where am I worried we don't have a clear plan? The one you mentioned earlier, residential homes. I think we've really got to work out what are we going to do about the 320 terawatt hours of gas, which are consumed domestically to power residential heating. And we need a clear answer to that. 
And the other, I think, is agriculture. I think, you know, we are still far short of the actions required on agriculture. For instance, uh, the UK has a much, much smaller forest cover than most countries in Europe, much less than Germany, much less than Scandinavia, much less than France. The Climate Change Committee in its report has talked about the major opportunity for the plantation of woodlands. We don't want those to just be sort of rows of conifers. We also want to do it in a, a attractive a, a woodland development fashion. Um, but it's just of, of its nature that sequestering carbon by uh, growing trees is a thing that takes time. And typically it has a sort of S-curve. You know, once you plant a tree in the ground, uh, it doesn't actually absorb much carbon for the first five years versus 10 years. Then it starts hitting, you know, a growth spurt and it starts getting serious. So unless we get serious very, very soon about things like uh, a forest cover, unless we get a clear answer to meat production and uh, what we're going to do about methane emissions from cattle. Do we have a way of changing the feeds or does it mean that we just have to produce and consume less meat? I think we don't at the moment have a clear plan for what are we going to do uh, with the sort of 40 million tonnes or so of emissions which come from the agricultural sector. So we're heading in the right direction. Some sectors, we have a pretty clear plan, but there are these remaining sectors which get more and more important over time, residential heat, the agricultural sector, and also aviation. Fantastic. Uh, we could talk for ages, but we need to leave it there. But Lord Turner, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Lord Adair Turner, Chair of the Energy Transitions Commission. Lord Turner is also a speaker at a webinar the Foundation is holding on the 21st of March about progress towards net zero. You can find out details of that webinar, which is free to attend, on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. The website also has details of all our other events, all our blogs, journals, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.